0: Katamati teaches and writes about data science at DataQuest and has worked as a data scientist at several companies in the past. Srini, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So we've got a bunch of topics to discuss today, data science, data engineering, TensorFlow, other topics, but I want to start by talking a bit about what you are working on, which is DataQuest. We did a show with your DataQuest co-worker, Vic Paruchuri, so if listeners are curious, they can listen back to that episode. From where you sit, what is DataQuest and what are you working on there?
1: So the mission of DataQuest is to allow anyone to be able to work with data. Um, So we basically provide an interactive learning platform where anyone can go uh, with very little experience, uh, in most cases, no experience, learn how to write code, how to work with data, how to kind of understand and grasp the concepts behind Statistics and machine learning, data visualization, etc., and basically how to go from zero to getting stuff done with data.
0: How big is the market of people that want to learn data science?
1: Uh, that's that's a really good question. Um, so our hypothesis is that the market, or the size of the market of people who want to learn uh, data science, is really big, and we think it's way bigger than, for example, number of people who want to learn how to build software. Um, There's a lot more people who, in some way, shape, or form, work with data. Um, There's a lot more people. SQL is probably the most popular programming language, not Python or Java. Um, Hmm. And there's so many people who work with data that they're using kind of a variety of tools. Data science is incredibly broad And we've not really seen a great solution for kind of figuring out what you don't know and kind of going about learning that. Um, I think Linda and Pluralsight do a great job in the kind of general software engineering space. Um, But we have yet to see a really good kind of product in the data science space. And we hope to kind of be that product.
0: And part of the way that you're you're solving that problem is by developing an in-browser experience, sort of like a gamified experience. Um, How well does that in-browser experience that you've created at DataQuest, how does that translate to the day-to-day work as a data scientist?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So We try to get as close as possible. Um, And so we basically, at each step of the learning phase, try to figure out what makes the most sense. So, in the kind of introductory Python and pandas and statistics uh, lessons, um, the interface resembles a little bit more of kind of like an IDE. um, But as like kind of, we've just introduced guided projects, for example, where the interface, we have two different interfaces, but one is kind of this mix of shell, like a live programming shell, and uh, actual like code snippets, uh, like an IDE, as well as a kind of interface that resembles very closely the Jupyter Notebook or the IPython Notebook interface. And so those interfaces are kind of to help people transition from the kind of interface I mentioned earlier, where we're kind of mixing text and code and you're running and evaluating code to see if you got it right, to kind of the more day-to-day workflow for most data scientists, which is the kind of iPython notebook or Jupyter notebook, uh, which is now what's called a workflow. And if you're not familiar, Jupyter notebook is essentially a project that has both kind of a kernel and kind of eval loop along with a notebook format. So you can kind of mix explaining and kind of uh, teaching concepts or exploring concepts with, um, as, with kind of live code that's that's ex- executed live, so it's pretty great.
0: And as many shows as we've done on Software Engineering Daily about data science and data engineering, I think it's still something that's worth delving into to provide some definitions. You were actually the first person to point out to me that there is this bifurcation in roles between data science and data engineering. I think many people listening probably don't know the distinction between these two roles, and it's kind of an evolving theme in computer science, in software engineering. How would you define these two roles, data science and data engineering? Totally. Uh, so data
1: a data scientist is essentially someone who, you know, more or less is trying to use data to do science. They're primarily interested, they see data as a tool and it's a way of understanding science. It's a way of understanding some process. And so they're primarily concerned with the kind of analysis piece. They're a little bit more interested in the theory, the math, Um, and they're fundamentally kind of interested in the business problems that you can solve with data. A data engineer is someone who's spent a lot more time figuring out how to store data, how to collect data, how to kind of supplement the data scientist. Uh, and so that, that's kind of the difference in the role. It's basically, you know, one, one, the data engineers are very focused on the storage, kind of how to share the data, how to work with the data. Uh, they're less, a little bit less kind of informed on how the data is actually used or they themselves are not that interested in using the data to reach decisions. Um, and so that's, uh, versus the data scientist, way more interested in, in actually what the data can tell them. So that's why it's a really great kind of pairing that's kind of evolved over time. Separation of
0: concerns. Exactly. So when a product company is getting started, you know, generally, you know, it's like, let's take, we can even think, talk about product hunt, for example, or name your hot startup. Originally, like they're focused very much on their core offering, which probably, they're not. They're not thinking as much about user data. They're not thinking about the the types of ancillary data that their product is giving off, sort of. So eventually, the product company starts to gain traction. Um, and uh, you know, early on, they did. The, the, you know, these companies don't really have data scientists because they're so focused on their core product. But as time goes on, they they need to take advantage of their data. So, what is a typical roadmap when a company decides? okay we've just, we're starting to scale we need to hire data scientists or or do they need to look at hiring data engineers first like what is what are the best practices to starting to accumulate a data organization
1: yeah that's a good question I think it depends a lot on just how the company evol- evolves and just the specifics of what the company's doing I think it's very similar to the way it's done in engineering where the beginning kind of the initial engineers are doing everything from qa to to testing to live uh, production stuff devops that kind of stuff and then over time you have as you mentioned the separation of concerns i think more or less uh it's very similar in data science and i think it's basically an evolution in complexity so in the beginning you know you're really only collecting really basic data that can fit in one SQL database. And then over time, um, that kind of evolves. And essentially, you know, you know, know, data science is all about understanding processes. And I think the evolution matches the evolution of the complexity of the process. As the process gets more and more complex, as you want to measure more and more, and you want to understand more and more about what's going on in your software product, um, you want to build more sophisticated solutions, you want... You want entire teams possibly dedicated to, uh, pro to just a product to understand just how one product works. And so, I think that evolution is kind of very natural. It's it's very dependent on how, you know, the product and the team, and the company is structured. But you're totally right that in the beginning, it really is just kind of one guy, maybe part time, and then it's <laughs> someone doing it full time, and then it's kind of a team. Um, it's really it's it's really quite interesting. And uh,
0: yeah. So no best practices yet, maybe, because it's just, I guess it just depends on the stack and the situation and how important data science is to the organization. Yeah, Priorities.
1: so I wouldn't say there's no best practices. Uh, Jeff Hammerbacker and DJ Patel definitely have really good both talks and kind of O'Reilly books about like, how to kind of really do data science, how to build data science teams. There's definitely kind of war stories that you can learn uh, mm. f- uh from uh th- those guys um and there's gr- a bunch of great talks as well I know software engineering daily has obviously kind of interviewed a lot of people who've looked from spotify and Netflix and you can hear about their war stories as well um mm. but I think that's exactly what it is in the their war stories right? there's definitely some mm-hmm. lessons you can take away, but I do think uh it it does end up being a little different for each company
0: so <clears throat> one of the one of the shows we did do was uh i think it was it was insight data science where the um, no, I'm sorry. This was Zipfian Academy, now Galvanized Data Science, where they were talking about how there's this misunderstanding kind of in some of the like hiring facilities of a company, oftentimes, and what the realities are of of what a data scientist cap- is capable of. So how this, how this manifests is companies will often post job positions uh, for data science unicorns that say. Uh, are da- we're looking for data scientists, must know MySQL, must know Spark, must know X, Y, Z, you know, Z prime, Z double prime. What are what is the minimum viable set of technologies that a data scientist needs to know and that a data engineer needs to know? Um <clears throat>
1: So I think those are two different kind of questions or ideas. The first one definitely, I think is maybe just a failure of understanding what a data scientist does. So the kind of the buzzwordy job posts, I think uh, that's, I think that's a good signal for kind of a not so developed or kind of inexperienced data science culture within a company. Um, And I think, I think the the places like Netflix or Spotify, that do have good data science cultures and established processes. they, um, they know kind of what they know what people want to or people are looking for in job postings, and they try to avoid just loading it with buzzwords. The second part um, is interest is an interesting question. I think, as I mentioned earlier, it does really depend on the company. Um, for example, a you know Google has this position called quantitative analyst, which is kind of their word for data scientist, and those guys, uh, based on my understanding, work a lot in R and Stata and that kind of stuff, and so those guys you know they for them they focus a lot more on quantitative concepts and your understanding of kind of really hardcore theoretical ideas over say your experience with spark. Um, and so you know so it does definitely depend on uh, the company but I will say uh, obviously kind of based on what we teach with DataQuest, we're pretty be- <clears throat> we're pretty big believers that like every data scientist and data analyst needs to know Python and SQL at the minimum. Um, those are kind of, in our opinion, the, in what we've seen as well, talking to companies and people who work at companies, uh, the two most kind of common languages uh, that people use, definitely SQL. Um, we do teach some R, and we still see a lot of organizations that do use R. And so uh, for people who have more of that quantitative, hardcore background, um, R tends to be the more common tool. for Data engineering uh that's a area that's evolving so quickly that it's actually uh quite interesting um i think it does depend a lot on the company so if you want to work at a certain company and they only use spark for example like one of my previous employers then you know lear- like learning spark is like the way to go but i do think for engineering, the most important language to know is java and the jvm because those th- most of these distributed processing tools are built using the jVM and so I think mm. having good mastery of the jVm learning at least spark or Hadoop and just being familiar with these other kind of libraries a lot of the stuff you guys have talked about um, I think is kind of the kind of a minimum
0: are there any more job responsibilities within these data science and data engineering verticals that will get unbundled further like are we going to have uh assistant data engine not assistant data engine <laughs> i don't know da- data you know c- could you see this tree break break down even further a data wizard um yeah I-, I definitely
1: think so so for example i'll give you a data quest we actually have a data analyst track as well and we actually we're actually pretty big uh believers of a data analyst role there's a lot of places like economic consulting firms or even um, even at fitbit where they actually have a different role for a data analyst a data scientist slash research scientist and a data engineer i think in kind of more mature data science organizations that kind of trifecta of kind of this person who's like working with data they're more of kind of a business intelligence person you can say uh, they use a lot of maybe python some are SQL, excel um then you have kind of this more science role, uh, which is usually PhDs, but not always the case, at least a master's degree in most cases, uh, who are way more focused on the models. And then you have this kind of data engineering, a data engineer person who is more focused on the infrastructure and DevOps and that kind of stuff. I think we might see more, uh, we might see data engineer get broken down more between kind of a DevOps and a um, and a role that's maybe more tightly uh, coupled with data science. Um, mm, so it's Data like, it's, ops. Yeah, maybe data ops. I don't know. Um, uh, you, you can kind of take the credit for quoting that phrase uh, <laughs> when, when, it, when it blows up, I guess. Um, but yeah, so I definitely think that's there. I think, the, I think the last role that's incredibly underappreciated is presentation, visualization, explanation. Mm. I, I, w- I think we will see this kind of and we are starting to see it like this hybrid of a data visualization engineer and a designer um, who kind of is really good at kind of, ex- who can do blog posts, who can kind of communicate, like, create really good reports and kind of the more explanatory human side of data science is still a uh, very, I think, underappreciated.
0: Mm, interesting. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, that, that raises an interesting question like how much of the work of the data scientist is uh, or how much of the responsibility of the data scientist is uh, generating the right queries versus explaining the meaning of those queries I guess or explaining the the statistical the explaining the conclusions that that one should draw off of the results um. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, let me ask you a more concrete question. So, so, uh, so a data scientist like you know no, needs to maybe know some SQL versus knowing some Spark. So, as somebody who has just um, uh, you know talked about Spark but hasn't actually worked on it, which is you know um, admitting probably a sin to some listeners, but uh, nonetheless it's the truth. Uh, I've not worked with Spark you know, what do I need to know about Spark? What do I need to, like, What is does what is a Spark query consist of and how does that differ from, um, like, just a, a SQL query?
1: Yeah, so that's really interesting. Um, so Spark is not quite, um, so Spark is still kind of a, a framework you can think of. it. I mean, Spark is really, as, you know, Matei said, it's really just a generalization of MapReduce uh it's actually i would say it's much closer to a programming language than uh, a, uh than like a query specific language uh like for like uh like sql um and so like for example you can use spark just for data processing and not even doing any data science per se you can just use it to kind of store and manage data without even doing any data science um i think uh yeah.
0: Uh, sorry, I forgot the original question. Well, I was just like, you know, I remember I, when I, in the first real-life conversation I had with you, you were talking about your work as a data scientist at one of your previous jobs. And you said that, that working with Spark from your end um, as a data scientist was not difficult at all. It was, I think you drew the analogy between working with Spark and just like entering SQL queries. So... Maybe I'm misremembering our conversation, but uh, I'm just curious, like, you know, I've entered SQL queries before. How much of a jump is it to enter a Spark query?
1: Yeah, um, I think it is. I think they are quite different. I think that the more appropriate jump is between the iPython notebook flow and the Spark flow. Uh, there's a few reasons for this. So as I mentioned earlier, a lot of data scientists do use the kind of Jupyter notebook slash iPython notebook workflow to kind of interactively explore data. And I think what what the Spark guys really focused on is they have a project called PySpark, which is basically uses uh, this library called Py4J. And it allows you to write Python code along with... It has such a Python library and a spec. Um, but you can basically write Python code and it, it'll generate kind of code that runs on the JVM. And so it's kind of a way to interact with like a Spark cluster completely using Python. And so I think what's really great about that is is if you know Python, you know Spark. I think that's that's essentially the leap that I might have mentioned. Um I think, yeah, if you still only know SQL, you still may not appreciate like just how programming works, like error messages. And there's still a lot of kind of programming-related stuff that I think if you just know SQL, you may not be all at home with and comfortable with Spark. But I definitely think if you're kind of used to this IPython notebook workflow, you've done some pandas before, and you've kind of generally worked with data, this notebook-style format, I think uh, it's really easy, You know, maybe a few days tops. To make that transition to the kind of PySpark workflow, um, I, I think that's that's maybe what I may have been
0: referring to. Mm, okay, got it. So m- many of the people who listen to this show categorize themselves either as software engineers. You know, they're they're either back end infrastructure or they work on front end web frameworks. I don't think I have a ton of listeners who categorize themselves as data scientists or data engineers, and you know, ostensibly many of the engineers that are just doing back-end infrastructure or front-end web framework, the people who I believe are the bulk of the listeners, um, they don't need to know much about data science or machine learning. But if if they were going to learn some material, what are the things that they absolutely need to know about data science and machine learning?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think the most important thing to to know about data science is just kind of the data skepticism. Um, it, it's just kind of uh, I a, mean, I think, I really think data science is like design in the sense of it. It's a way of thinking. Uh, it, it's And so just like you can look at any process object in the world and understand maybe the trade-offs that were made, the design, the design decisions that were made. I think you can think about any kind of, you know, maybe New York times headline or any kind of report that you might see at work or kind of a, I don't know, some diagram that um, some MBA came up with at your workplace. And just think about like, what was the kind of, what were the assumptions that were made when that report was created or, Or even kind of like why you're working on something. So I think uh, one thing that's really interesting that I think LinkedIn, for example, did really well was they made data scientists super important and gave them a lot of autonomy in the organization. And so there's a well-known story of Peter Skamorch, who I think it was Peter, who kind of came up with the... um, who you might know or who like who you should friend or whatever feature on LinkedIn. And that was kind of a data scientist who came up with this feature that really drove a lot of engagement. And I think that kind of marriage, um, between kind of data science and product engineering is really healthy. So I do think, uh, like learning, trying to figure out more about like why, for example, if you're an engineer, like why you're working on a certain feature or you know, is, is, you know, is this the right thing to focus on? And just having that kind of step skepticism and trying to like understand, like show me the data, like why is this the right thing to do? I think that that's just a healthy attitude to have in general. Hmm. I think that's probably the biggest kind of takeaway and important kind of philosophical thing about data science that everyone should learn.
0: So are you saying that organizations should not work on features if they can't back up the justification for that feature with data?
1: Uh, I think
0: maybe not quite as black and white. Um, there are many
1: cases where, you know, like you actually don't have the data and you still have to make a decision. There's a great article talking about um, kind of being data informed versus data driven. I think in many mm. cases, you are doing something completely new. It is kind of hard to really have like, oh, let's, let's like do a bunch of data analysis and figure out if it's right or not. I do think every decision can be data informed. So what are some kind of general things that are going on in the business that like for the, and that makes sense for a certain decision or even more so like, um, in the kind of iterative engineering process, can you push something up quickly and then use data to measure people's reactions to a new feature or, or, or clients reactions to a new feature or something like that. So I think, um, you know, I, I think that that always has a role to play. It may not be before it could be after in some cases, but I do think, um, you know, looking at the data and trying to see how it can inform and guide your decisions is super important um, because if you just, if you try to quantify everything, uh, you could go wrong as well. So, I, you know, there's, sometimes you do have to kind of pick a fork in the road and just, uh, you know, when, sorry, when you're at a fork in the road, you have to pick a path and I think you have to go with something, uh, but at least kind of make sure that you're monitoring and make, and ensuring that it is the right decision.
0: So you mentioned this New York Times headline stuff and being skeptical of that. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think about is, you know, oftentimes with, you know, uh, New York Times medical section, for example, or uh, some kind of scientific report, what happens is, uh, you know, you have a a study that gets published and it will say something like, uh, oh, you know, we've we've realized that this bacteria has a 30% chance of doing X right. and it gets translated into a New York times headline of bacteria causes this, <laughs> um, you know, it, whereas actually it's just a 30%, you know, 30% incident or correlation rate or whatever. And so, so what I'm curious about is like, do you think that as data and data science becomes like permeates the, the public awareness at an increasing rate do you think we'll have headlines and uh and sound bites that have an increasing granularity of of truth to them or do you think that this like uh you know kind of information condensation into a headline will will just continue
1: yeah i mean the headline thing is interesting i'm not i'm not so sure if the headlines themselves will get all that better um I think uh there's a brand kind of market piece to it. I think like you know, for example, like Vox media's headlines I think are way better than maybe BuzzFeeds. Uh, but I don't know, that that could have changed. So I think it also depends on the target audience and kinda of what they're going for. But I do think overall more and more publications are using data and they are using graphs in the actual explanation, in the actual post itself. So the headlines, because of the way Twitter and Facebook work, and there's kind of all these other market realities where maybe headlines could still drive the eyeballs, but hopefully when people, the kind of reasonably intelligent people who actually want to dive in, e- even if it's not all the way to the source article, but at least, uh, or the source research paper, but at least read The paper, uh, read the sorry, read the post carefully. Uh, Hopefully, and we are seeing this with kind of New York Times and a lot of other box media as well, where they are including a lot more graphs, a lot more data, links to the source, data sets Sometimes I think 538 is the gold
0: standard. Yeah, literally every yeah. Go ahead. Well, this comes back to what you were saying about the design importance, the the data translator or data presentation layer specialist or whatever that role is
1: yeah totally i think uh yeah i think the 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 emergence of the role data journalist uh i'm sure if you go to google trends Mm -hmm. you'll see that as a huge spike in the last 10 years where you know there's like this entire profession of just people who are like kind of semi-computer scientists slash engineers semi-stats person and semi-journalist, and it's kind of this like really interesting uh, unicorn, maybe, but really kind of intersection of skills where it's all about storytelling using data. And I think, mm. um, yeah, I think all the modern publications have really embraced that. Uh, I think 538 and New York Times have really led the charge. Um, they're they have really good interactive graphics teams, and they I think they have the highest quality work. But we're seeing this kind of more and more where everyone if people wanna. People like, you know, if you go by 20 years, people maybe cared less about graphs and data, but now people are demanding data. Um, there's some great polls that show, great polls and studies that show that kind of millennials especially really want, they like seeing graphs, they like seeing data, and that's somehow more convincing. The danger, however, um, as I said earlier about over-quantifying, is that people use data to tell the wrong story. So there's still, you know, that, that needs to kind of balance out as well because you can definitely use yeah, you can get
0: the data to say anything you want, right? And so... Yeah, I, I, I've definitely seen some really interesting blog posts about, like, graphs that totally misrepresent the truth just because they use, like, interesting angles and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, so there's definitely... I think it's an
1: evolution. It's going to take maybe 50, 100 years. It's really kind of... But I think it's... I think where we're at now is, you know, relatively healthy, and it's great to see... You know, is an entire publication... Um, that uses data in pretty much every single post. That, that that's like, I don't know if you could have done that thirty years ago. Like, I don't know if there was even an audience for it. And I think that they're kind of the pinnacle of that. But even kind of, uh, there are entire even kind of publications within large media organizations, like the City Lab. I think that's the Atlantic. The City Lab is very data driven as well. So I think um, we're starting to see a lot of it, and I'm really thankful for it. I think uh, it's it's really it's a really exciting time just in data science in general.
0: Yeah. So speaking of journalism, I mean, you're a listener to software engineering daily, and I would love to get your feedback on w- what are the areas of data science and data engineering that you would like to see covered more? And what are the things that I don't cover well enough? Like what, like, if you could, if you could navigate to, you know, softwareengineeringdaily.com, and you click on it, and you see like, a, you know, some articles, and you see a podcast what are the topics that you wish were covered more?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think um, uh, I think coverage of kind of the data science process would be more interesting. So uh, there's a lot of great coverage on kind of libraries, tools, and uh, since it is a software engineering podcast, I mean, rightly so, there should be a lot of focus on the tools and the software products themselves. But I think, um, you know, to, to delve past, to, to go deeper into data science, I think, exploring a lot more into how data science is actually done the workflow um i know when you interviewed spotify guy he had some kind of good explanation of what his day-to-day looks like i think that's probably uh i think that's really important and really interesting um even even questions like what are the most common algorithms that a data scientists and data engineers work with. uh i think if you read the headlines maybe you don't know much about data science, you might think it's all like deep neural networks and like crazy (laughs) fancy AI AI stuff. But, uh, you'd be surprised just like how much of it is just counting and like regression and just, you know, like really not super complex techniques. Um, 90% of data science is not kind of these really fancy models, uh, that you'll see, you know? So that's really interesting. I think letting people kind of get aware of that is I think super important. Um,
0: yeah. So when when you think about the episodes that make your ears glaze over, or that, uh, or the episodes that really like pique your interest the entire time, is it about the topics? Is it like is it anecdotes? Like, do you enjoy like a Spotify episode when we talked about um, you know, kind of Spotify's data science in practice? Is that more interesting than? going down the rabbit hole of some specific technology and how it works in uh you know at at a theoretical level or like what do you yeah. what do you like to see from a meta level I think from a meta level exploring the evolution of
1: something is really interesting and, and you guys have done this decently well so even at even um when you interviewed um I think it was Joe Dolliner, he talked about how their frustrations at Airbnb caused them to start packaging. That's, that was like really fascinating to see that story, to listen to that story. So stuff like that is great. Even at Netflix and Spotify, talking about what they had before, and then what they kind of had to evolve into was really interesting. The TensorFlow episode, kind of the evolution from disbelief, TensorFlow was really interesting. I think that's like, I think a podcast and an interview is a really good interface and a good medium for discovering that kind of evolution, the war story. Um, I think those are the episodes I've kind of historically enjoyed the most, just really kind of that context and getting, building that kind of just a deeper relationship and getting into, you know, just like what, what were, you know, what what was that person or team experiencing that led them to, because, you know, these technologies were not created in a vacuum. They were, they were, you know, created to solve real business problems. It's so learning about mm. those problems and how they solve them, I think is, the most interesting thing that you know, software engineering daily has done really well.
0: Yeah, I think it is the storytelling. I think the sto- the storytelling that drives into yeah. the technical aspects are what, what creates a really interesting episode. Yeah, that's a fair conclusion, yeah. So you're a contributor to the DataQuest blog, which has some great posts. One post that I liked gave a really succinct introduction to spark. And this was really useful to someone like me who basically just reports on spark and, and hasn't worked much with it directly, but beyond the raw tutorial style informational posts, you also have interviews that you conduct with data scientists. Um, and when you're talking with these different data scientists, what are the things that you find in common?
1: Oh, that's That's really interesting.
0: Um,
1: I definitely think.
0: Uh, hmm, that's a really
1: interesting question. Um,
0: or is I that is that, th- th- is that as broad as like saying what are the different things that you find in common with software engineers? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, maybe, but no, there's, there's definitely some common things. So I think the most common thing is, this is regurgitated all the time is that you know th- there is. I think people maybe underestimate from the outside looking in just how much time is spent on all the data janitorial stuff so even if you are working at facebook even if you do have all this infrastructure and stuff but even you know even spending like 20 minutes to write the sql query you know what you want already but you have to express it in the way a computer can understand it right so there's like there's that there's actually downloading the data there's like getting it into pandas or whatever tool set you use and there's there's a lot of um yeah. It, I think maybe people think that, uh, it's like a scene from Iron Man and people are just like manipulating <laughs> data and it's like, you know, maybe one day. Right. But like for now it's, it, there's so much time that's definitely spent on just, even if it's not cleaning data, it's acquiring it, it's formatting it. It's, it's kind of all these, all these things. And I think, um, yeah, I think that's, that's like the less sexy side of it. So I think maybe it's discussed a little bit less, but I do think, um, every, almost everyone I've, I've talked to, um, definitely highlight that. Um, we, we, and this is something we do poorly as well as we don't really highlight that enough maybe in our, our own interview questions. So it's actually uh, good feedback. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it comes up, comes up quite a bit.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about one, uh, let's talk about one of the companies that you've interviewed. You, you recently talked to stitch fix, which uses data science and algorithms to improve the selection of merchandise to clients. Tell me about Stitch Fix's approach to data science.
1: Yeah, their approach is very interesting. So just a quick overview. So Stitch Fix is basically, you know, you if if you're kind of a lady and you want um, to fix where you get clothes delivered to you, um, they basically you spend like $50 or $60 and they pick, they hand select clothes and they send it to you. Um, and they know a lot about your style your personality your you know your lifestyle um and they have they use a combination of algorithms and human stylists to figure out what's the best um kind of dress or or whatever for you. I think what's really interesting about their approach is um you could um, most people and kind of recommend or a lot of people i think when they see a problem like this maybe are tempted to do all human or all, all computer um So just completely kind of, you know, Pandora style, uh, just brute recommendation that I know they, I know they use some human training as well, but, um, or kind of just have a stylist go to pay a lot of money and go to a stylist yourself. I think what's really interesting about them is they've worked really, really hard to figure out what the balance is. So, um, and the really interesting thing is at the, um, I think unlike Netflix or unlike a lot of other, uh, companies where the, the training might be done by humans, but the computer still does the output the selection in this stitch fixes case a human actually picks the final kind of dress or whatever they're sending to their clients which is really interesting because i think that flips the conversation it's basically instead of saying how do we kind of just allow computers to better do kind of recommendations it's how do we allow humans to utilize computers to do better recommendations and that that conversations that kind of mindset is really interesting i think um uh, that probably won't work in every case, but I do think uh, it's very underrated. And I think um, there's there's a lot that can come out of that kind of symbiosis.
0: Yeah, in in Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, he talks about human-computer symbiosis, and he emphasizes that he thinks it's an underrated idea. How How should more people be focusing on how to keep the human in the loop during a uh machine learning or or data science process rather than rather than just automating everything.
1: Yeah, I think the key I think the biggest thing is remembering that at the end of the day, you're building a product to solve human problems. So I think the focus should be on how do we solve that human problem um as effectively as possible. And then these and kind of, you know, algorithms like human training, um, these are all just different tools to accomplish that. Um I think that's the best way to approach something is not to say like, Oh, you know, you know, maybe people have been doing this thing manually for so long. How do we automate it? That's kind of like the typical, like, it's like, Oh, this like job sucks or it's boring or whatever. How do we automate it? Right. And that's, that's kind of the wrong. One. Um, I think it's kind of, it's slightly misguided. Um, I think in many cases, um, most of the work is completely unskilled. So if you're an elevator operator, I mean, you know, there's there's not really like a, a lot you can do to empower them, you know, if, if you will. Uh, but I think there's a lot of jobs where um, figuring out how to make humans more efficient, more kind of conversant, and just more productive in general. I think that's that's like how you think about the problem. Instead of saying like, okay, how do we just replace human judgment, or you know, or whatever? It's like, how do we use algorithms to, for example, cut down. The you know the number of dresses that a stylist has to pick from a thousand to ten, um, because the marginal and you can what's really interesting too is if you were to build the opposite where you actually had like you know uh, maybe a human picking some but then the computer still making the final decision, the I think the computer would actually perform va- vastly worse. Um, and so what's interesting is you can even just do you can it can be a purely business decision where you could say that at the end of the day a human looking at it and picking a dress. Or, or whatever is like, it's just like getting it right is just worth so much money to us that um, it's like, why kind of risk or why kind of allow the computer to do it when the error rate is, in most cases, going to be higher?
0: Mm. In, in this interview with Stitch Fix, you mentioned the notorious problem of recommendation systems called the cold start problem. What is the cold start problem? So, the cold
1: start problem is it's definitely notorious in recommendation systems. It's, it's also very kind of notorious in, uh, data science in general, right? So if you want to build a new kind of data science product, um, usually you need a lot of data already, right? So that, that's like the interesting catch point too. It's, it's kind of like the chicken or egg problem in social networks, right? It, it's very similar. So, you know, if you're like Netflix or if you're stitch fix, for example, in this case, and you want to recommend, um, clothes or movies to people, and a lot of recommendation engines is a tool is a technique called collaborative filtering, where you're kind of looking at joint purchasing decisions that people have made. So like two users are similar. So they made kind of they might like similar stuff. Well, if you don't have any user data, how do you know, like, which two users are similar? How do you know, kind of like what, what they both might like? And I think that's, that's probably the in recommendation engine specifically, that's usually the hardest part. It's like, how do you give recommendations to someone when they're the first person or the the thousandth person, right? It takes, usually it takes, um, kind of thousands, millions of recommendations to really get kind of to Amazon, Netflix scale to give good recommendations. And they still get things wrong all the time. Right.
0: Okay. Interesting. So how did stitch fix solve the cold start problem?
1: I think, I think this ties into their human computer symbiosis approach where, um, I'm guessing the early days more and more relied a lot more on the human element. Um, And so like they would have the human stylists actually kind of pick out the dresses um, and they would have these surveys that they would give to people like new customers, really extensive surveys and they would combine the outputs of the surveys they would combine the, the judgments, the final decisions that say a stylist made. And then over time, figure out how to kind of codify that, how to build, Kind of machine learning models out of that. Um, I think that's generally uh, that's generally like the best approach. Basically, kind of just observe. You you have to basically find a way to collect that data. That could either be kind of letting people do kind of search and discoveries. So maybe you're in the early days of Netflix. You're just kind of on your own. You were just like like just searching for movies, whatever. Eventually, they added the recommendation engine um, because they had the data and they wanted to improve the experience. I think it's like somewhat similar here where maybe you you weren't that data informed at the beginning um, and you relied more on human judgment and then you kind of over time figured out how to kind of build that up.
0: Mm, okay. W- one thing that Brad from Stitch Fix said that was interesting was he said that an aptitude for framing problems is as important as the technical skills themselves. And this echoes something that your colleague Vic said in my discussion with him where you said it's it's often not so hard to figure out how to find the answer to a question as a data scientist. The hard part is finding what question to ask. Is this consistent with your experience when you're doing uh, data science?
1: Yeah, I, I agree a lot with that, and I think um, you know uh, Douglas Adams from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy knew this knew this the best, right? Um, with his kind of ending ending part. I mean, it's it's so true. I mean, there's there's um, you can imagine a company like Facebook. Sorry, right? what does like, Douglas just, Adams say? Uh, he so at the end of a uh, end of the book, um, they ask like this. They find a supercomputer, this the smartest supercomputer in the world, and they ask it like, "What is the meaning of life?" or something, and it just says forty two. Um, and so the kind of the takeaway from the book is basically that, um, is that like the answer, like framing the question, is the hard part. Once you frame a question the right way, the answer is actually easy. Uh, which is like really, uh, I think you could probably apply this to any aspect of life, but I think definitely in data science when you have, um, you imagine a company like Facebook would have just petabytes, probably exabytes of data, right? Like the hard part is not hiring people to just kind of willy-nilly comb through the data. Um, You would never be able to hire enough people to just kind of analyze every data point and every pattern, you know? Um, It's more of figuring out what's signal from the noise. It's more of like figuring out what data is actually important, um, what actually drives results, what actually affects the kind of bottom line of the business. I think, um, especially in the kind of quote-unquote big data era that we live in, I think um, one could even argue that um, the, like the the problem framing, problem solving aspects of data science outweigh the kind of big data engineering aspects or that are at least as important. Um, in the early days, that was not the case, I think. Uh, There's still like... There's still, you'd still have to spend so much time. The tools weren't good enough where you could actually kind of focus more on the science, I think. But now, you know, I think the tools have gotten pretty good. So there's a disproportionate focus on framing problems because now it's actually relatively easy to query data or whatever.
0: Right. Well, I think about Kafka, for example, Kafka being developed at LinkedIn, yep. and LinkedIn developed Kafka partly to deal with the problem of. When a user makes an update to their profile, how do you propagate that change to other aspects of the system? And today we'd be like, what? That doesn't sound difficult at all. <laughs> Being able to yep. maintain consistency among the user's profile and the search engine and different ranking algorithms and stuff, that's that's not really a problem these days because we have Kafka uh, and yep. and so now that we have kafka so now we can ask the interesting questions so what is the question so um you know in the past i kind of kind of see what you're saying maybe we weren't thinking uh, yeah in these terms we were bottlenecked. we
1: bottleneck. were basically i think we were bottlenecked. and i think because of linkedin i think like you know what is that that quote about how like necessity is like the mother invention, invention. It's totally yeah. like you look at the open source that comes out of linkedin and facebook and and google even right like it's it's totally that like totally in line with that principle. Mm-hmm.
0: So speaking of Google, um, Google recently open sourced TensorFlow, the machine learning library. We did a show about this with Greg Corrado from Google. As a data scientist who is on the outside of Google, why is TensorFlow important?
1: It's really interesting. So TensorFlow, I think, I think the reason TensorFlow is interesting is it's it's you can think of it as kind of like Uh, like what Spark did for Hadoop, right? So, you know, Hadoop was this giant thing. It was like really hard to install. And then there's all these companies that pop up around it. They have like this loosely based disconnected ecosystem of products and services and stuff like that. Um, Huge kind of code base, that kind of stuff. And I think that's kind of like what, I think that is the role that TensorFlow will will play in kind of the machine learning and, you know, the the machine learning space and data science space is just, it is a kind of unified abstraction for working with machine learning models, and I think what's so interesting is they just unify so many concepts. Um, so they have, you know, it, it, like I know, like uh, Spotify has that open source project Luigi for data pipelining, and it's and I think TensorFlow because of its the way it's set up is definitely could take over some of the stuff that Luigi does, kind of building data pipelines, if it's kind of extended, it's not there yet. But I think the way they've architected the product to be this kind of abstraction where you can kind of, it's not really, people talk about it like it's a deep learning library. I think that maybe underscores how interesting it is. It's really, that's like saying Spark is just like a, I don't know, big data library or something <laughs> like that. Just like an NLP library or something it's very specific.
0: It's
1: a SQL library. Exactly. <laughs> but really, it, it's its like a general abstraction. Um of just kind of running machine learning models. Uh, it makes it really, really easy for you to write your own models um, to specify kind of computations and order of computations as part of their directed acyclic graph. They've done a lot to just to make it kind of modular, reusable, scalable. Um, they have the kernels for different kind of devices and platforms. It's really, uh, it's a well thought out kind of engineering uh, marvel, I think.
0: We've seen some machine learning libraries in the past. There's Theano and Torch. How do these things compare to TensorFlow? Why was TensorFlow such a breakthrough above these? Yeah, I think uh,
1: those libraries, I will say, are still really good. So Theano is is actually one of the authors of Theano is one of uh, one of the creators of Theano is one of the co-authors of a TensorFlow paper. Um, and so like, you know, it's kind of like maybe they were scratching their own itch in the sense of like, they kind of saw the limitations of the stuff. I think, um, I think the main thing is like, it's, it's, it's trying to unify the different kind of approaches. I think the main differences are that like Theano, yeah, there's Keras, there's, there's, there's kind of four or five of these. Um, a lot of them are still pretty focused on, I mean it's still pretty focused on more of the advanced machine learning algorithms, deep learning, that kind of stuff. They, most of their innovation is around making that like a much easier to do. Um, but they, but like, you know, using Theano or Keras in production is non-trivial. It is, it is quite a bit of work. It's just not, I still think those, pro- I still see those products as science products. Like they're kind of for researchers by researchers. Um, you can, maybe it's like R a little bit, uh, kind of by statisticians for statisticians. I think it's very similar. Um, it's just like uh there's obviously people who have made it work, but they there's still there's a lot lacking. Um yeah, you know, there it's not trivial to make it work within a data center, it's not trivial to make it scale. And I think the other big question is like how long the support will be, right? Like TensorFlow is backed by Google, right? And um unless it goes the way of Angular.js, I I think it's like here to be supported, it's here to stay. Um and I think the shortcomings will be kind of worked out. There's definitely some performance shortcomings. I think those will be worked out kind of over time.
0: The Exponent podcast did a show about TensorFlow. And in that show, the host, Ben Thompson, who also writes the Stratechery blog, if you've heard of that, he, he argues that Google open-sourced TensorFlow simply because they have the most data and therefore they can leverage TensorFlow the most – so they might as well open source it to the rest of the community and let the community uh, aggressively update it. Um, I I don't know enough about data science and machine learning to know if this is a accurate narrative. It's, it seems pretty cynical. Is this accurate? Like, do you think this is accurate? Well, I think I think it's
1: it it it's mostly accurate in the sense of like, getting, um, you know, this goes back a little bit to the Cold Star problem, right? Like, it's not, like, if building a recommendation engine is not difficult. Building a good one that works well, that solves a problem very well, is really hard. Like, you could build, you know, people build Google clones of Google search engine in a weekend, right? Um, like, maybe that's what, like, Bing tried to do. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's the hard part is that, like, the reason Google has not been dethroned from search at least from search is because their data right they have so much data on they know when you're searching something you could be pretty far off and it's pretty crazy how google still kind of knows what you're searching for and that's not because of some kind of unique algorithms that they have in fact google search team is known very well for not actually being that kind of machine learning driven like a lot of their the ways they do things is with human training um and they've, you know, it's it's kind of well known that they're not um, like it's, it's people even say that Bing, for example, uses more machine learning, it, but it doesn't really matter because they just Google has so much data, they have so much insight into what people really want, um, and I think that uh, that definitely trumps the models. Um, I think the real reason they open sourced it is because you know they want to. Um, there's, I think there's a few reasons. One is it's great from a recruiting standpoint, obviously, right? Like if you want to work. Deep learning, if you want to work on AI stuff, um, like Google is like the place to go, right? And this is something people have criticized, for example, Apple for, which is they're way more secretive. And so if you're a top AI researcher, you may be less inclined to go to a place like Apple because researchers really like to kind of open source stuff, like to publish stuff a lot. I think the other thing, too, is um, there's still a lot of aspects of kind of doing machine learning at scale that I don't think Google is just going to solve magically. By themselves, but keeping everything secret. So, for example, right, like the cost of uh, like NVIDIA GPUs and their their dominance in like the deep learning space um, and just machine learning in general. Um, I think that like goes to show just how important these other companies and other related industries are. So, if you make, for example, if you make it really really easy for people to run machine learning models, do deep learning on GPUs. Um, that's really great for NVIDIA. That might hopefully help drive the cost down for GPUs, which Google benefits from as well, right? There's a lot of other kinds of things like that where um, they benefit the ecosystem and then they also get to reap the benefits of their contributions.
0: Well, this certainly brings us to Facebook who open sources, what is it, like uh, hardware specs for doing AI or something like that? Do you Do you know anything yep. about that and how significant that is?
1: Yeah, I, I unfortunately I've not read that much into it. Um, but Facebook has been really good about open sourcing both both software but as well as as well as hardware. Um, yeah, they're really good about like the, you can actually go buy like, not not buy you can download a CAD model of their data center and you can actually get like the same data center like infrastructure set up for you. Um, which is like super interesting, right? Like, um, and I think I, I don't, don't know if Google has that, but I know Facebook has taken a lot of efforts to do that. Um yeah, it's it's really interesting. So I, I don't actually know a lot about I, I did hear about it, but I don't know much about what exactly it is. Um but I do think it's I think like open source is, is very you know, it's 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 really good if you think about Facebook's mission of making the world more transparent, right? Like if, if the company is not transparent then with their projects and their software projects that kinda of goes against that a little bit. So I think um I think these kinds of open source products are great. I think it's the reason Facebook is able to maintain such a great kind of caliber of engineering talent. If you want to work on the cutting edge of front end development, that's like Facebook. That's like react, right? If you want to work on cutting edge, like deep learning stuff, you know, arguably uh, maybe the hardware side, Facebook's a little better uh, now. I'm not really sure. So that's like, it's really interesting.
0: Hmm. Okay. So speaking more about like TensorFlow in, in practice, in the interview with Greg, Corrado he talked about how TensorFlow allows users to deploy machine learning models to a user's phone. Is this anything new or is this is is the new aspect here just the way that TensorFlow does it?
1: I think uh, it's definitely not the first time you can run a machine learning model on your phone. Um, objective C, Android, like you know, these these frameworks have machine learning libraries. If you just if you want to do machine learning on your phone, it's definitely is not the first time you can do it. Um, I think I think the mobile thing is twofold. One is I think it kind of shows the power of TensorFlow, which is basically like you know you're not making like piano and then porting it to mobile or kind of making a separate you know piano like a mobile version of piano or something, right? <laughs> um, with TensorFlow, you're like like I think what's to, I think it's to prove a point in my opinion, which is basically that like. This is a this is really a general framework. It is an abstraction. Like you know, in ten years, I mean, maybe we won't be using phones; we'll be using something else. Like, um, and like you can just swap it out. Just write the kernel, build the kernel for it, and then you know, voila, most of the things will still work. And I think, I think that's their point with with it. The other thing, though, is that um, so that's one thing. It's just the abstraction and just kind of pushing the bounds on what uh, like a framework, a machine learning framework should look like. I think the second thing is is that I think we will see more uh, kind of slowly, we will see more uh, machine learning being done on the phone itself. Um, So uh, especially as we get more towards VR, AR, that kind of stuff where it's it's more real time, you may not really want to wait to get the model updated in the back end. I know like Microsoft and Google both have projects for these kind of these kind of huge phones—definitely not like an iPhone or anything—but kind of modified phones with really powerful graphics units that can do imaging of a room, right, just from like a mobile device. But and, huge
0: phone—you mean physically huge, or in terms of like the capacity?
1: I mean, like, uh, I mean, both, both physical. just uh, like it's like really big. It isn't like it's not a. What I meant to say is that it's not like a product you just go buy. It's not really meant for consumers right now but it's basically like they took a phone, like an Android phone and stuffed it with GPUs oh, and they're wow. doing like real mapping within rooms, right? So like, uh, obviously like our current phones are, are not there. Like they probably won't be able to do that. But in the future, you know, who's to say that that's not possible. So I think, I think they want to move more, more towards that uh, over time. I still, I, I, I've, I'm still uh, not sure if there's a lot of current use cases they really benefit from being Michelin on the phone. As you probably know, the performance is not that great. Um, so I, I'm still a little skeptical that there's a lot you can do with it right now. But I think uh, I think it's just kind of bet on the future.
0: Have you used TensorFlow? Like, have you built anything with it? I have not, personally, myself. It's, it's been on my to-do list. But I have
1: spoken to quite a few people who have, um, including some researchers at Stanford and whatever. And unanimously, people, they have said that, like, yeah, like I'm going to be using TensorFlow. Wow. Um, like for kind of for future projects. For old stuff that they're kind of refactoring, like if you have the ANO code, you know, you have the ANO code, right? Like it may not be worth the effort to rewrite everything. But um there's a lot of people who are who are quite long on TensorFlow. Um I think like I think Google is like probably half the reason. Just just even the fact that you know it's going to be supported, hopefully, I guess. Um right. and you know that like it's there's like a good, vibrant community that's going to build up over time. Um, so it's definitely – I have not used it personally myself, but uh, it, it does seem very promising, even though it does have – it has some performance shortcomings. It, it, you can't really do stuff like distributed deep learning yet. Um, they haven't released that yet. But I do think uh, as it gets stronger, it, it's, it, it will become very, very compelling.
0: Awesome. <clears throat> so let's begin to close off uh, a little bit, and I want to shift the conversation towards – uh software engineering daily because you've been there from the beginning you've oh. been listening to the show you've been um <clears throat> you know with us from the start so you know what what can listeners who you know maybe are just listening sometimes but are not you know, heavily involved in the community, is there a reason that they should, you know, join the Slack channel, for example, or follow us more closely on Twitter or like, have you gotten anything unique out of the community or do you mostly just get value out of the podcast?
1: Um, there's, I've learned a lot out of the community for sure. Um, I think just getting even closer to you and Pernay has been, has been great, but I think even more just, uh, learning a lot, just kind of observing, um, it's it's really kind of interesting to see it, it's it's almost like a mini social network. It's kind of like getting to see what others are talking about is really interesting. So like, what are? Because you know I'm not a software engineer, like a, kind of a real software engineer by trade. That's not really my background. I mean I do write software, but um, I'm not I don't kind of do it professionally. So it's really interesting to see you know as someone who does more data science stuff peeking in. It's really interesting to see what like what interests software engineers, what the kind of problems that they have. What, how do they see data science and what are they kind of excited about? I think the biggest thing, which is kind of, I think, the fundamental point of maybe social networks is just, it's just that perspective, just getting the perspective on what people who have, there's some kind of mutual level of interest and trust, right? Like we're not just complete strangers. We all have a shared experience of listening to this podcast together. We have things to talk about together. I think the most important thing is just kind of the ideas that are exchanged, um, you know, just like people who want to discuss papers, um, it's, it's just kind of this like natural kind of like chatterboard, if you will, of like what's going on, what's interesting, what are people's different perspectives on stuff? Um, seeing people's like different people's reactions to the same thing, or even like, you know, um, within certain industries that, you know, there's a lot of things about a lot of industries I don't know about. So there's, there's, um, I've definitely, I'm even like Facebook friends with some of the guys, uh, I've like kind of talked with on the. Side community, I think that's a testament in and of itself. Just uh, maybe some of the bonds we've we've formed there.
0: So, what would you like to see more? Like, if 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 you had a vision, if you could spend like fifteen minutes, and you're like, you've got fifteen minutes, you've got two million dollars to allocate towards (laughs) towards software engineering daily. Like, where would you like to see it go? What would you like to see more of? Or is there a limitation to how much time you want to spend? thinking about software engineering on it on a daily basis?
1: Um I, I think um I think the most interesting thing is uh how how do we kind of how does one foster better discussion amongst kind of subgroups? Um right now look I think Slack does an okay job with this. It's not really great at handling kind of smaller discussions. I mean yeah you can make a channel fine, you know. Um, but it would be really cool, like, to have, like, it would be really cool to have kind of, like, short-term discussions, maybe, like, a day, and then it just kind of stops, right? So, like, something happens. It's, like, you know, maybe it's, like, similar to Hacker News a little bit, where, you know, it was, like something happens, like, someone exposes some Theranos thing, or Jeff Bezos does something interesting, and people, like, seeing people's reaction and just discussing it is really interesting. Um, and, like, that used to be great on HN it is no longer the case. Like, I don't really feel like commenting on Hacker News anymore. And you also don't have anything in common. I don't think you have anything in common with the other Hacker News people. It's so big now. The community is so big that um, it's just kind of this, like, faceless avatar network kind of. I don't know. Versus, I think, on SE Daily. Yeah, I think there's a lot of community. But there's just no, like, shared respect and mutual trust that I think, you know, SE Daily can definitely kind of keep going. Um, Because of that just community feel. I, I think kind of figuring out ways to build like smaller temporary groups or um maybe moving away from slack entirely if i had two million dollars i would ideally like to build my own kind of community software mm, that was like 100 focused that was like a little bit modular but very focused on the needs of like software engineering daily um mm. how do people even discussing like, right now if you want to discuss something you have text and images right, so that you paste right like how do people kind of like interactively explain stuff how do we you know have like little I don't know periscope video stuff just allowing more forms of discussion besides text is really interesting to me
0: maybe like product hunt is the model I should be looking at
1: yeah um, even though I think same they have the same issue there too which is like it's just like thankfully they do have like you like say who you are it's not just like random people or random usernames so maybe maybe that's why they've solved that with identity hmm. um, a little bit um, but yeah
0: cool well Shrini katamati thanks for coming on to software engineering daily uh, this was really interesting talking to you um, you are a valued member of the community so um, <laughs> so so thanks for coming on totally I, I enjoyed it